Good to see you all. Um, hope you're doing okay. How are the seats out there? Well sanitized. <laughs> um, let's go ahead. Um, we're, we're in our second part of our new series, Gospel Centered Life, and we're gonna this really kind of land on what that looks like today. And so let's let's pray and ask the Lord to do His sovereign work in our lives. Lord, we pray, Lord, as we look into Your Word, Lord, that we would see You. Lord, that you would help us to comprehend you, to know you, to love you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in this special way that you would give us not just a note, uh, not just a love letter, but literally 66 books of your redemptive plan for man. And so we pray, Lord, that your spirit would um, work through me. Um, Lord, that your, your spirit be working in amongst all of us. Lord, seeking to draw us to you and to conform us um, into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, there's a lot of ways we could center our lives on, but I want to just give you two basic categories. One is called the sand category, and the other one is called the big sand, which is a rock, right? Sand is like little particles and the rock is big. So as you think of sand, it's tiny, it's small, it's dusty. Uh, many of us, I'm sure we have played in the sand at the park or definitely the beach. I don't know if I see sand in parks anymore these days. That's kind of come and gone. I just remember as a kid <laughs> seeing sand in parks quite often, but I don't know if I see that so much anymore. But as you go to the beach and you play in the sand, many times you may stand at the part of the beach where the sand and the water comes and touches. And then when the, <coughs> the wave um, comes up and then comes down, you can literally feel the sand rushing on your legs and your feet. And then literally you, you feel your feet sink depending how heavy you are, two or three or four inches, or depending how much sand comes underneath, underneath, comes away underneath your feet. And so you see that sand is not a firm, hard foundation to build on. It is, it is sinking sand. It's not solid. It's not hard. It's not firm. And so the sinking sand that we could have our lives centered on could potentially be human tradition or human opinion or human culture, or human religion or human philosophy, or just even your own self-effort, your, <coughs> your own merit or your own status that you're trying to create or fabricate. Or the other category that you could be <coughs> building your life on and centering your, centering your life upon would be the rock. Uh, we're not talking about a pebble or a stone, but we're talking like bedrock, immovable, hard, solid. And the Bible calls uh, <clears throat> our faith to be founded on Jesus Christ, the rock. In fact, in Matthew, it says that on this rock, referring to Jesus, God would build his church. And so when we think of church, we're not thinking of a physical building, right? We're thinking of the lives of God's called, elect, and redeemed. So today, in part two, I need to take this mask off because I'm sucking in the mask into my mouth. <coughs> um, in our series, um, <coughs> The Gospel Center Life, we're going to examine what it means to center our lives on the gospel with Christ as the foundation 
and the rock. And so we're going to look at four aspects as we center our lives on Jesus Christ and as we look to him as an object of our worship. And so the three, the four aspects that we're going to look at is to worship God with all our heart from this passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, aspect number two is worship God with all our body. Aspect number three is to worship God with all our mind. And then aspect number four is to worship God with all your will. And so let's just begin here with Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We see our first aspect. It says, worship God. The, the first aspect here is worship God with all your heart. Romans 12, 1 here, the Apostle Paul is speaking. We, the whole message last week was basically on Paul's calling from Saul to Paul and how he was a rebel against Christ and then he became a rebel for Christ, radically called on the road to Damascus. And he, and he says here in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. And so we looked at Paul's conversion and his calling and so now Paul is ministering and speaking and addressing to the Roman saints in Rome. And he, he wants to encourage them. He wants, to, he wants them to follow Christ radically, but he doesn't give them a command. He doesn't give them a suggestion, but it says in this passage that he appeals to them. <clears throat> the, the word appeal comes from the same idea of to come alongside to help. Um, this is the same word and <coughs> that we understand and is used for the, the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also known to come alongside us as believers, is also understood to be um, our helper. This is also the same word that's used to describe a wife in relationship to a husband, um, a helper suitable for him, a corresponding part. And so sometimes when I think about a corresponding part and I think of a door and a hinge, like what's more important, the door or the hinge? Well, they're both very important. Without a door, you can't, the hinge is useless. With just a hinge, a door is useless. So both parts um, are, are important. And so Paul is coming alongside these Ro this Roman church. He's not pulling rank. He could easily come down with the apostolic authority and say, hey, you got to do it. You got to do this now. But no, he comes alongside them as a fellow brother in Christ. <clears throat> one who has received grace, one who has received mercy. And he's appealing to, to their heart, their affection for the, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're appealing He's appealing to them to say, hey, do you have a sense within you that you want to um, live your life in light of the mercies of God? And so that brings us to our next key word and next phrase. The next key word you see in verse one is therefore. And whenever you're reading, particularly the epistles, but even the Old Testament, when you see contrasting words, but in this case, the word therefore, you must ask why the word therefore is therefore. And usually when you look at therefore, it connects the previous context, the near context. And I also would say the, the broader context that led up to Romans chapter 12, verse one. So if you think of the, the near context, if you go to Romans 11, verse 36, you see the doxology, how everything <coughs> is focused on 
Christ. Um, for that reason alone, how things flow from him to him and for him is every reason um, we should consider following him and receive this gracious appeal from Paul as a reminder. But if you look at the, consider the broader context all the way through Romans one, chapter one, all the way through 11, it frames that really what the next phrase is. He says, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Um, first of all, mercy is not getting what we deserve, but given the context and the grammar it's easily you could co connect this therefore and the mercies of God all the way back to the first 11 chapters in Romans where we find essentially the gospel. Um, what is the gospel from Romans chapter one through 11 and then Romans 12 through 16 is how to live out the gospel or how to center your life on the gospel. Or another way to look at Romans is Romans chapters one through 11 is doctrine and then 12 through 16 is duty. And so to understand what the mercies of God are, I'm really going to give you a, a overview, a bird's eye picture, a sketch of Romans chapters one through 11 right now. So the first three chapters, we basically see condemnation. We see the need for God's righteousness because what man lacks righteousness. Um, in fact, man has no righteousness of his own that can merit him favor or eternity or community um, with God in heaven, because in heaven you have to be perfectly righteous to go there. So before a holy God, um, we see <coughs> in Romans chapter three, verses nine through 10, the state of mankind. Paul says this, what then are we better off? No, excuse me. Are we Jews any better off? He poses a question. And the answer to this question is no, not at all. For if we have already already charged that all both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, it is written no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. So basically Romans chapters one, two, and three is a picture of mankind standing before God, who's the holy judge, also the holy creator. And before the holy judge, both Jews and Gentiles are declared guilty before a holy God as criminals, those who have broken God's law. But if you understand theology correctly, we're not ones who just were born and broken God's law. <coughs> we understand our theology to understand it this way. We are, we are born in trespasses and sins. We are born spiritually dead, unable to help our spiritual condition of being dead and needing of uh, being awakened by God's sovereign grace. So that's the first section in Romans chapter one through three, man's need. We are condemned and in need of righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own before a holy God. So we are objects of God's holy and just wrath. And then if you look at the latter part of Romans three chapters, 321 through 521, we see the great doctrine of justification. 
This is God's provision of righteousness. This is the whole theme of righteousness. We, man lacks righteousness. Now God provides righteousness through justification by faith alone. So if you can continue along in Romans as we walk down this Romans road and come with me to Romans chapter, twi- uh, chapter 4 verses 2 and 3, we see another key verse that summarizes a big chunk of verses in the Old Testament with Abraham's life. Sometimes we ask, you know, how are Old Testament saints saved? They knew that there would be a redeemer and a Messiah would come. And so they looked forward to the coming Messiah. From our side, <clears throat> in view of the gospel and view of the cross, we look backwards, um, believing and trusting that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and was saved. So for Abraham's sake, he looked forward. Um, he knew he needed righteousness. And so in in Romans chapter four, verses two and three, it says for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. So if Abraham could save himself by sacrificing whatever animals, his son, um, he would have something to boast about, but not before God in verse two, verse three, it says for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Okay, you need to put your mind around that. He didn't work to justify himself, but Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. So Abraham, like any human being, was born in debt, spiritual debt. In fact, spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. And it says, if you believe in God, you'll be counted righteous. So what does that mean? Abraham had no righteousness before the Holy God, but by believing in God himself, he was counted righteousness. So God (laughs) literally took his righteousness and put it into Abraham's spiritual ledger and made him righteous before Holy God. Perfect as if he never sinned. Perfect like God himself and perfect like Christ himself. And so come down another nine verses to Romans chapter four, verse 13. It says for the promise to Abraham and his offsprings that he would be an heir of the world did not come through the law by obeying the law or achieving the law, but through righteousness of faith. So it's very clear. It is by faith alone, by belief alone in God alone, that one is made perfectly righteous, holy, acceptable, and guess what? Perfectly approved and accepted by God. Prior to faith and belief in God, we were what? Enemies in relationship to a holy God. We were not his friend at that point. We were not his son and daughter. But once you place your faith and your belief in God alone, to, to save you, to rescue you, and to grant you the righteousness you so need. Everything changes. You're now a child of God. You have the hope of heaven. You have been forgiven of sin. You have been freed from the penalty of sin. You have been pardoned from sin. You have the hope of glory. And guess what? You have eternal security. You have been acquitted by God, the judge, before his divine court. That is is huge. As a kid growing up, I didn't know the president had this power or authority to do a presidential pardon. I'm like, what? That's not fair. But he has this 
authority is not a divine authority, but it's a presidential authority and he could pardon whoever he wishes is my understanding. I don't know everyone, but he does it. He pardons different people. And so in this case, it is God's divine authority, which he has selected according his, to his divine economy to use the vehicle of faith to save sinful man by faith alone, by belief alone. Come with me to the next chapter, Romans chapter five, verses eight. Well, actually let's go six through 10 Romans chapter five, verses six through 10. Uh, This is one of my favorite verses because I don't know. I see me and all humanity in this in Romans chapter five, verse six, it says for while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates or shows his love for us. And while we were yet sinners or still sinners or still dead in our sins or still rebellious, running our hellbound race against God, guess what? Christ died for us. That blows my mind. When someone does mean things against me, guess what? My natural reaction is not to do loving things toward them or for them. Um, We did the meanest thing we possibly do against a holy God is to sin against him, to rebel against him. I mean, I don't know how to describe how mean this is. The Lord has given us everything and it's literally to spit in his face, to kick him in the head or even worse to say, Hey, you're not worthy of your throne. I want to rip you out of your throne and take your throne as my own throne and be the ruler of my own life. But Christ died for us. He stood and hung himself on the cross for us. You and me sinful man. Verse nine Since therefore we have now been justified, forgiven, and acquitted by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now we have been reconciled, shall be saved by his blood life. Man, this is a great verse to just meditate. If you think you're not loved, if you think you're not valued, I want you to know your life was worth the life of Christ's very son. I know some of us have kids. I mean, which kid do you want to give up for the rest of this church? You know, Tracy, is it Manny? Phoebe or Apollos, which one that we would, that we would choose to hang on the cross to die for the sins of all the world, knowing that he would come back on the third day anyways, but it's hard to say, Hey, we want our, we want to see our kids suffer. We do a lot of stuff to like prevent our kids from suffering. As parents, we try to learn things and say, okay, we actually need to let them surface suffer on purpose so they could grow. But God freely gave his son that he would die for us. And so that's this middle section of Romans chapter four and five, the great doctrine of justification by faith, where 
man, what we lacked righteousness. And then by faith, we are given righteousness. And then in chapters, Romans chapters six, seven, and eight, we are to grow in practical righteousness. This is called sanctification. We are to practice or demonstrate God's righteousness. In Romans chapter six, verse four says we have, we were buried therefore by him in, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the fathers, we too might walk in newness of Christ. So this is huge. Our old man is dead and now we are a new creation. We are called to walk in a newness of life. And so this is a picture of sanctification in Romans chapter one, verse um, chapter eight, verse one, excuse me. It says, therefore, therefore, now there is no condemnation, condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Some of us, including myself, we have a t- tendency or propensity to be hard on ourselves and maybe even condemn ourselves or are good at condemning others. Um, and sometimes we simply need to remind ourselves that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus before Holy God. He won't judge us twice. There's no double jeopardy. Once you are saved in Christ alone, by faith alone, I believe you are saved forever and eternally <clears throat> in the hands of God. Nothing can separate you from his love. You cannot be judged again for the penalty of sin. You are forgiven. And so you stand in a no condemnation status. And so that should only encourage you to walk this new life in Christ, to walk in righteousness because you have been what? Freed from the power of sin. And then in Romans chapters 9, 10, 11, we see restoration. Israel's being restored um, in in righteousness. And so one of the key verses I want to at least draw out in that passage is found in Romans chapter 10, verses eight and nine. It says here, because if, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for the heart. One believes and is justified. And with, one's mouth, excuse me, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And so again, explains how one is saved by confessing Christ as Lord and believing that God rose him, raised him from the dead. And now that brings us to our present passage. Um, In Romans chapter 12, we're talking about how to live out the gospel how to center life in the gospel. So Romans chapters 12 through 16 is basically application of righteousness, our behavior of God's righteousness. So this is a turning point, the hinge of the book of Romans. And so to summarize this turning point from believing in the gospel to living the gospel, I want to give you a a couple quote, a quote and illustration. CT stud said this, he says, since the son of, of God has died for me, then the least I can do is live for him. If Jesus, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, said the great British athlete CT stud, there is no sacrifice too great for me to make for him. In other words, God has given us his best in his son and he died for us. The least we could do is live for him, um, to have 
a heart of gratitude to live a life of gratitude and appreciation for what he's done. Um, a long time ago, as a young believer, I, I heard this illustration that stuck to me um, over the years. Um, there's, a, there's a story about a, a building that was burning, whole building burning, and this woman couldn't get down the stairs, so she climbed out and opened up the window and stood at the ledge, and there's fire to the left, to the right, and behind her. And the firemen weren't able to get the ladder up in time. And so a man <coughs> stood right below her and said, lady, jump. And so she jumped and she, she, she he caught her and she la he landed on his back and then snapped his head onto the ground and was paralyzed from the neck down. And so out of appreciation for this man, this fireman, this woman chose to serve this man out of appreciation and gratitude for what he did to save her from this burning apartment complex. And that's just a little picture of what God did in saving us from the wrath of God. And so again, this is what Paul is doing. He's appealing by the mercies of God that you would worship God with all your heart. That's the first aspect. The second aspect is to worship God with all your body. In view of God's mercy, Paul makes his appeal that we would worship God with all our body. And so in, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1b, it says, this appeal is to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, with it, <coughs> which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service to God. And so Paul is taking an Old Testament context concept and spinning it and bringing a New Testament perspective here. In the Old Testament, how would you worship, right? You would sacrifice animals. You would act, you're supposed to sacrifice the best animals and <coughs> give them to God as worship. And usually you sacrifice these and kill these animals and they would be dead. So Paul is taking the same concept and says, you're not supposed to be dead. You're supposed to be living sacrifices. Your whole entire life is a worship to God. As long as God gives you breath and mental capacity and your physical bodies to work with, <clears throat> you are to present your bodies. This is a one-time event that <clears throat> has, is a, that has is a past action that carries present um, present decision and consequences uh, moving forward. It's kind of like marriage. You make a one-time decision and you live it out. And so it's a bold, it's a total commitment to live radically committed to God. So it's a picture of being a living sacrifice. And so this is what Paul is making appeal for us to do, to live as living sacrifices. There's a story of a Chinese Christian man who wanted to dedicate himself to the gospel. And so he is moved by compassion for his own countrymen that were taken into slavery in South American mines. So in order to be a witness and in order to be an ambassador to his fellow Chinese, this prominent man literally sold himself to the mining company to work as a coolie for five years with these African, <coughs> in these African slave mines. He served there for five years. And what happened is that he led over 200 men and women to Christ. He, he, he chose to be a slave and later he died there. 
in a picture, he is the fullest sense of a living sacrifice. What Paul calls us today is literally to be a living sacrifice for him every day in our normal lives, day in and day out. So what does a sacrifice look like? I'm not going to spell it out to you in details, but may the Holy Spirit show you. It may impact your money. It may impact your time. It may impact your comfort zone. It may impact the type of people you would choose to naturally relate with. It may call you to different type of people that need the gospel. It may impact your choices. It may impact your future. It may impact your lifestyle. It may impact the type of class of living you're living. Those are the type of impacts it can and may have as you live as a living sacrifice. And so Paul describes a little bit further what this living sacrifice is. He says it's to be holy and acceptable. So you have two choices. You could be a living sacrifice that's unholy or holy. The hope here that God is drawing us to is to live as a holy sacrifice set apart for his purpose, consecrated to live godly lives for him. And I believe when he talks about your bodies, he's saying everything, your mind, your thought, your emotions, your frustrations, your disappointments, your attitude, even your scars that haunt you, your, your past. Sometimes we, we say, oh, I'm just a victim of my past. And that's why I act this way. My mom and dad was like this. My whole heritage is like this. And I, that's why I act this way. And you make excuses for why you behave a certain way. And what Paul is saying, hey, you are a living sacrifice set apart to be holy and acceptable to God. And so <clears throat> there's two types of worship. There's unacceptable and acceptable. And God calls us to offer acceptable worship to God in the Old Testament, we had a very good idea of what it looked like to um, worship in such a way that was unacceptable. Come with me to Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Malachi is the book right before Ma Matthew. So they have two M books, Ma Malachi and then Matthew. Um, Sometimes they call Malachi Malachi, the Italian prophet, but we'll just call him Malachi. I'm giving you a chance to get there. Malachi chapter one, verses six through eight. This is a picture of what it looks like to worship in an unacceptable, unholy way in the Old Testament. So Malachi chapter one, verses six through eight. This is this very blunt, straightforward rebuke from God to the people of Israel. And he's rebuking them in the area of their worship. He says in, in Malachi chapter one, verse six, through eight, a son honors his father. That makes sense, right? You, you, you want to have a son and your hope is that your son would honor your father and with <clears throat> a servant, his master. So if you guys can understand this, if you're working, you want to honor your boss or <clears throat> your owner. And so you, you, you give honor to them. You work hard. And so most of us are inclined to do that. If you're a son or if you're an employee. So if then I am a father. God himself is saying, I am a father. Where's my honor? He should have honor. He's a father of every, every, every child of God. He goes on and says, and if I'm a master, where's my fear? <laughs> if God is the Lord, the master over our, do, do you, do you even fear me? 
is, is what the Lord is saying, says the Lord of hosts. And now he's addressing to the priest. He says, oh, priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my, el- my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying <coughs> that the Lord's table has table, <coughs> the Lord's table may, de- may be despised. And then he says, but you offered blind animals in sacrifices. Is, <coughs> is that not evil? So these people are saying, hey, you know, <coughs> here's my worst animal. It's blind. And they're saying, hey, this is good. Be, be happy, Lord. And, <coughs> and the Lord is saying, hey, no, that, that is evil. And they go on and they, <coughs> the people of Israel, they offer the lame and the sick and the sick. So they're, they're, they're looking at all that they can offer. They have healthy lambs and sheep, and they can offer those pretty easily. There's right there in front of them, but they get the sick one. They get the gross one. They get the lame, sick, sliva, <clears throat> it's very clear on the outside that their skin doesn't look healthy. And they're saying, hey, Lord, here is the lame and here is the sick. May this be a worship to you. And the Lord is saying, is that not evil? And he goes on and says, <clears throat> that, <clears throat> present this to your governor. Would he accept you or favor you? Would you even give this to your governor, a lame animal that was sick, says the Lord of hosts. What would the governor of that day say? He'd be, he'd laugh. He might be angry. He might be upset. And so what, what, what these people are doing is what? They're giving God their leftovers, the worst lamb, the worst sheep. And so as we take this and translate this to the New Testament, God says to live as living sacrifices. He's calling us and inviting us to give us that we would give our best to him, that we would give our best energy, our best waking hours, our best thoughts to him. And so when you think of your life, what do we give to the Lord? I know a lot of us, we give a lot of our best energy to our school and work. And I'm saying, yes, honor the Lord in your work and school but also honor the Lord straight up in your work, in your school, in your thoughts, in your, in your time. Give the Lord your best. I know what it means to give leftovers. Um, for probably 15 years in my childhood, we would spend 4th of July at my cousin's house. And without a fail, every year we were fed steak, usually T-bone steak. And it was hilarious. We would just gnaw on our T-bone steak, eat, eat the meat. And afterwards we would literally just throw the bone on the ground. <laughs> it's it crazy. Like 20 relatives and uncles and cousins, we'd all throw our bones on the ground and the dog would come and lick this bone and eat it. And the dog was really happy. <laughs> the dog was happy with our leftovers. I want you to know as we give like a minute of prayer at night, barely thinking about God through the day, God is not happy if we treat him like a dog, God's name isn't spelled backwards. God is not a dog that we give our leftover bones. God is God and he deserves our best of our thoughts, of our time, of our efforts as we worship him. 
So just think about it. Are we giving God our best? <laughs> Are we giving God our leftovers? After 16 hours of work, God, I'm just going to fall over. I understand in certain situations, you have to work. But give God it through the day. God, help me with this account. Help me write this letter. Help me with this client. I understand some people are in the military. There is no day off at certain times. You just got to gotta fight. And that's your calling in that situation. And it looks different. But you live as living sacrifices. Um, aspect number three, worship God with all your mind. Paul begins with a negative command and says, do not be conformed to this world. Implying that what? The Roman believers that he's addressing and talking to are conformed to this, to this world. He wouldn't say this if they weren't conformed to this world. And he's basically saying, hey, you're assuming an, basically an outward expression that doesn't match or line up with the inward reality of a changed, saved, transformed person. He says, he's saying, do, do not be conformed to this present age. This, the values, the beliefs, the mindset of this fallen world. D.A. Moody had a, a great quote. He says this about Christians living in the world. Christians should live in the world. He wants you to live in the world, but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she, does, <coughs> she goes to the bottom. So a Christian may live in the world, but... If the world gets in them, guess what? They sink. And I thought that was so true. When I think of churches in America today I, I, and believers in America, you know, ones that are filled with truth, even in hard and difficult times, they're still sailing. They're still doing well. But those who have been filled with the world, guess what? They're often sinking believers and they're churches that are closing down because they're so filled with the world. And I think what's happened in uh, most Christians today, we take, we take a lot from the world into our soul and mind, and we take a lot uh, uh, of God's grace and truth. So we're taking truth and we're taking lies constantly. And I think it basically puts this disdain or this bitterness in our stomach. I don't know if you guys know what soy sauce is, and you guys know what soy milk is. Imagine drinking soy sauce and soy milk, a little bit of each. It's great when it's separate, right? It's terrible if you put it together. If I was teaching a bunch of youth at a camp, I would get a teenager and say, hey, drink a cup of soy sauce, drink a cup of milk, <laughs> drink a cup of soy sauce and see what happens. Right? But I think this is what we are doing as believers. We take some of the grossest stuff of the world and we take some of the greatest stuff of the Christian faith and truth. And we just have this spiritual indigestion. And so I think that's what is happening. But Paul says, says, what? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed with the renewing of your mind. God's already transformed us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. We are new creations um, by faith in Jesus Christ. We have been born again. The old is gone. And now what Paul is basically telling us, how do we get that which has been created new to be transformed in our practical and daily lives. And he says very simply that we need renewal in our mind for whatever amount of years and even up to our current life, we have trained our minds 
to think like the world. When we read the news, we, <coughs> we think like the world. Even we pick up the world's habits through our, our parents and definitely through our schools. And so the whole process is being renewed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and thinking. We have cut like crevices and and cracks and <coughs> gutters into our thinking with the world. And now there's a process of renewal. And sometimes we don't even realize our thinking is this way. It's just, it's already a reaction. We're so trained into the old ways. And so what Christ is saying is that our mind needs to be trained and needs to be renewed. It needs to be filtered through the scriptures, through the word of God. And you can't expect like Mick Christianity to help this renewal. You need deep truths. You need deep doctrine. You need to listen, not to fluffy Christianity. Or you need to read guys that think about God a lot, that write thick books, that think heavily about theology. That's the type of formation that needs to take place. I know we read a lot. I mean, if we went into your apps, you can see how much you read every day or watch on your phone. You literally are watching hours of stuff every day. And then we talked about give God your best, not just a leftover like a dog. Um, in my family, we have major dust allergies. Um, you have at your home, have a choice what kind of filters you can use. The ones that are used you buy for two or three bucks um, to filter your house that are level one, two, or three. At my family, we use level nine or 10. That literally says that could filter um, the flu virus <laughs> and pollen. So we run these through our house. And I'm like looking on the internet. Is there one that could filter the COVID virus? Guess what? It doesn't exist. Or the virus is too small with COVID. But we seriously use a serious filter to filter things in our home. And what Paul is essentially saying, may God's word be the filter that filters your mind and renews your mind and purifies your mind so that you would think thoughts that are like Christ, that your mind would be renewed. And then lastly, aspect number four, God calls us and invites us to worship with all our hearts, with all our body, with all our mind and with all our our will. And so the last part of verse two, Paul invites the Romans to align themselves with Christ, with his scripture, with all their heart, mind, and strength. And he does it in a very interesting way. He says, do it in such a way that by testing, you may discern or you may prove what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And I think much of today's church and Christian these days, we, we may go say, hey, I'm giving some of my heart and giving some of my body and giving some of my thoughts. But this whole next level to say, hey, I'm going to just put it all on the line. I'm going to give my will. And, and what Paul is saying, hey, test me on this. Test me on my word. So I think many of us, we audit our Christianity. We know we're supposed to make disciples. We know we're supposed to give generously. We know a lot of these things. But <clears throat> we know we're supposed to have no fear, but we have this fear. But I think there's this gap between our brain and our heart. I think some people miss heaven by 12 inches because we haven't filtrated what we have in our thought 
into our will. I think we miss living this amazing journey that God wants to take us because we just keep our Christianity in our head. You can't say, I know discipleship. <laughs> no, you, you make disciples. You can't say, I know worship. No, you actually worship God. Okay. It has to go from the brain to the heart. And so what Paul is saying, may you worship with all your will that you would know God's will as not just good, not just acceptable, but perfect God's best. And that you would understand it as the most satisfying and the most desirable. Let me give you a couple quotes and I'll frame this up a little more. Um, Elizabeth Elliot says this. He says, the will of God is not something to add to your life. It's a course you choose. You either line yourself up with the word of God or you capitulate to the principle which govern the rest of the world. Rooted church, how are you living in light of the mercies of God? Has it moved you to worship him with your whole entire life, with your heart, with your mind, with your body, with your will? Or are you merely pretending to do so? Or, or maybe you are just performing. You just look like it on the outside, but it's not really happening in the inside. I want to close with one of my favorite stories. If you've been around me or heard me online, you might've heard it, but it's okay. It still rings to me. It helps me to understand what this faith and what this calling looks like. And when Phoebe was a little girl, when we were, she was, I think four or five months old, we had the privilege to go to Niagara Falls and actually see this. And there was a little museum that described what happened there in June 30th, 1859. One of the greatest <coughs> tightrope walkers in all of history, Charles Blondin, became the first man in history to walk across the Niagara Falls. On that day, 25,000 people watched. That's a lot of people for those days, and we can't even get that many people online. But 25,000 people watched Charles Blondin <coughs> go across a 1,000 foot line suspended across the Niagara Falls. Have you ever been there? It's just long. It is wide. It is breathtaking. You would want to fall because you would literally fall on a ton of rocks. And so, so when, when Blondin walked across to the Canadian side, the, the, the crowd cheered with thunderous applause. Whoa, that's an amazing feat to walk across the Niagara Falls. On another occasion, he attempted to walk across the Niagara Falls again. This time he did so with a wheelbarrow. The, the, the crowd was amazed. They gasped as he took the wheelbarrow and took the tire off the front wheel and wheelbarrowed across the tightrope. They saw him go across the tightrope carrying and pushing the wheelbarrow. Clearly they knew he can do it. And so he turned to the crowd and asked if they believe he can do this. And they go, yeah, we just saw you do this. We, you went across. And so they clapped wholeheartedly with approval that this man could walk and also walk a wheelbarrow across. And so they all believed what intellectually, and they all believed intellectually. So Charles Bondin turned to a reporter who was covering the event and he looked straight at him <laughs> into his eyes and asked him this question. Do you believe I can tightrope across 
this waterfall? And he said, yes. Do you believe I could walk this <coughs> tightrope with a wheelbarrow? He said, yes. And so he said, without a doubt, I believe you can do this. And so Blondin stared the reporter more deeply into his eyes. And he asked this, if you believe, will you get into the wheelbarrow? Will you get into the wheelbarrow? Do you trust that I could walk you across the Niagara Falls? My question for you and for me, do we believe in God's word at the level of our will that God would journey with us across sin and death and save us and rescue us? And do you believe God will take you to the places that he wants you to do so? in his arms, in his safety, by faith. So I want to ask you some questions as we close out this time together. Are you living by faith? Has what you know, has it been translated into your heart? Do you believe Jesus Christ on the faith level? on the level of your will. And so the first question I want to ask you, if you do not know Jesus Christ and you know that he is not your savior and Lord, and you recognize in today's message that my righteousness cannot save me. I I recognize that there is a righteous one that lived and died for me. And I want to place my faith in him. And I haven't done so all these years. I've been pretending, I've been faking it. And right now, if it's you, that you want to turn to Jesus Christ and get in that wheelbarrow of faith and and radically give your life to him. You may do that right now. You may give your life to him and be forgiven of sin permanently and have the hope of glory. For those of you who have already been saved, how do you walk in this walk? Are you staying in the wheelbarrow or are you just like got in the wheelbarrow the first time and you just got out of the wheel like the next day or the week later and you're really just living on your own? So I have a few questions for you. If you have been saved, have you been baptized? Many believers say, hey, I, I, I know you as Lord, but I'm not even obeying you on the very first step. If this is you, if you want to be baptized, let's do this soon. Let's go get some water and let's get dunked on. Please talk to me or one of the leaders. We would love to baptize you. Second one, if you're not a member and you want to just take the next level of faith and to say, hey, I want to commit together with others and live accountable. There's opportunity that you can become members. We have three people that are joining the membership here at Rooted Church today because they want to be come accountable and journey this faith together. They know that it's difficult to live this faith and they want others along with them. For others of you and myself, you may be just struggling um, in, in enslavement and sin in addiction. If this is you, um, by faith as Christ works in you, he calls us to live for him. And as you, but guess what? If you live for him more and more, you let go of other things. It's that simple. And that's how transformation takes place. 
And I believe in this room, there are some of us that God has called to be full-time missionaries and pastors. And this is you. We love to talk with you. So let's, <clears throat> and you may be wrestling like, oh God, is this, am I crazy? <laughs> am I going to just be poor? <laughs> is God going to help me? Or you may, God may be calling you into a different field. And you're like, oh man, my mom and dad won't like this. But you know, God is leading me this way. Maybe it's time to step back in that wheelbarrow and trust him to journey you and to be with you, to go maybe where you didn't think you'd go, but you need Jesus to take you through year one and year three and year five and to be faithful to the very end. One of my favorite times every four years is the Olympics. And we missed it this year. One of my favorite events is basically gymnastics. And one of the favorite events within the gymnastics is the women's beam. It's amazing. I can't even barely walk across a four inch beam, but they do flips, round offs and everything. And I want you to think about your life as a beam. You get to do a beam exercise of faith for the Lord. And you could climb on that beam and just hold on to it. You could just stand on it. And in the end, on judgment day, you will do a dismount. And you can say, hey, Lord, I just sat on the beam for 50 years and I played it super safe. Or you can say, Lord, you know, I lived by faith. I did cartwheels. I did flips. I did a dismount going backwards, not seeing the beam and landing. And I just lived radically by faith for you on judgment day. If you're, if you just jump off that beam and you just hung on that beam, just kind of holding on to the beam for 40 years, what do you think he's going to give you a 10, <laughs> a three? No, live in such a way that you live by faith. And then when you jump off, you know, you're going for that nine or 10. And in the end, he says, what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You lived by faith. You took what you knew about me. You translated in your heart and you lived transformed lives. Let's pray. As Jason and Andrew um, play, I want you, I'm just going to walk through these things and I'm going to ask you the same questions and, and then pray for you. Father, is there, any, is there anyone in this room that wants to be saved right now and received a call to salvation and get in that wheelbarrow for the very first time to be rescued? If this is you, as this, this is an expression of what's happening in your mind and heart, would you raise your hand? Would you raise your hand? Maybe the Spirit is nudging you in another area. You know that you should get baptized. You know it's in the Bible and you just put it off. If this is you, would you raise your hand? Saying, hey, it's time. I want to get baptized. I want to obey the Lord. Anyone here? We wanted to serve you, encourage you in this journey. Is this you? Anybody interested in membership down the road that want a covenant? with Christ and his local church here. 
we would love to come alongside you. So if this is you, raise your hand. We'd just love to encourage you and help you understand what that would look like. Thank you, bro. This is a broader one, but I understand according to Romans chapter, no, Hebrews chapter 12, there's sin in this world that so, so easily entangles us, that trips us up in our minds and heart, and we find ourselves enslaved into sin. We're addicted into sin. We keep going to these patterns of cussing, yelling, addiction of whatever, some external substance. If this is you, we'd love to pray for you. It's probably all of us, if we're honest, to some degree, we have some addiction and some enslavement. So whether your hands up are physically or just inside your own heart, I'm sure some, we have addictions that we need freedom from. And lastly, if anyone, if the Lord's moving in you to consider full-time ministry, pastor, missionary, domestic, full-time worker, if this is you, we would love to be a part of your training process and come alongside you as a local church in this journey. If this is you, let us know. You might already be in this pathway and just say, hey, this is me still. If this is you, raise your hand. Thank you, brothers. We want to come with you in this journey. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, that they would come, that they would sense your calling, moving them to you. Father, we pray for those who want to get baptized and become a, a member one day. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would confirm this, Lord, that you would be involved with the necessary steps. For the sin that so easily entangles us, God, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know that we are free in Christ. You paid the, for the penalty of sin, and you've actually set us free. The chains are gone. We have been set free. It's just that we've been used to living these sinful ways. Our brain has been trained and needs, what? To be retrained all over again with the renewal of the mind. Lord, free us from these sins and enslavements of 5 or 10 or 20 or maybe even 50 years. Set us free. Set us free. May we know the freedom in the gospel. May we actively own our discipleship and our personal walk, being in community and discipleship and growth groups and taking advantage of being equipped in the Old Testament. What a great way to know God through the Old Testament. We thank you, God, for blessing us with a teacher <laughs> that's gifted in teaching and doing. May we learn. And for those who are considering and want to be part of full-time Christian work, Father, we want to journey with you. I know there's hard decisions and scary decisions and changes you need to make. Father, we pray, Lord, that God's grace and his spirit would confirm the decisions you need to make and that you would step out in faith in that wheelbarrow, trusting Jesus. <laughs> we have every reason to trust Jesus because the grave is empty and all these promises were fulfilled and he rose again. We're not putting our faith in, in an empty wish or a hope. We can know without a doubt that the Lord is good and he will be with us through every journey, every hardship, every trial we find ourselves in. 
Spirit of God, help us move what we know down to our hearts, into our will, that we might live by faith and not by sight. Help us with our number crunching, our, all our calculations, writing out all the pros and cons. The one thing we need to know is what? Lord, you are worthy, worthy to be followed. Worthy that we will give our leftovers to you, that we would give our very best of our waking hours, of our energy, of our heart, our mind, and our strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, Rooted Church, I want you to know that you are loved by God. You are so loved. He wants to send you on this amazing mission to join him here on earth where you live, where you work, where you play, where you school. Rooted Church, be rooted in the gospel to reflect his glory. May the word of God continue to conform you into his image. May you walk humbly with you, Lord. And Rooted Church, we want to greet one another. We want to do so with COVID sensitivity and guidelines, mask on, hands washed, sanitation used. Today we have, we'll be able to hang out till about what, 1220, 1225. We want to clean up, leave one canopy. We'll have, we have a members meeting four times a year to talk about internal matters and future matters. And so um, <clears throat> we'll just set up one canopy in front of here. So those who want to sit on the outside can, and those who want to sit on the inside that feel okay can do that. Um, so let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. We pray you bless our fellowship and the meal. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you want to talk about the things in the sermon, I encourage you to talk. Love to talk with you. You can talk with one of the leaders. Thank you.